Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We are virtually on Zoom doing an interview with Marshall Lyles, which we are so excited to be um, doing today and to get to just explore more specifically the approach with EMDR therapy, looking at it with sand tray, um, attachment focus and all of that and much, much more. So Marshall, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, I, I want to give an introduction of who you are and what you do. That's really, um, robust and covers everything, but I feel like you could probably do that much better than I could. So (laughs) will you share with us and our listeners more about like what you do, what you specialize in and kind of your history with EMDR? Yeah, I'm happy to. I'm, I'm in Austin, Texas. Uh, I'm a marriage and family therapist by training um, and a registered play therapist. Um, Mostly I work in the world of expressive therapies and so I do a lot of work in Santre um, and poetry. Um, those are my two primary integrations in the world of EMDR. Uh, there's, you know, art and clay in particular and other things, but especially during the pandemic, um, poetry and sand have been the easiest yeah. to continue on yeah. uh, virtually. Yeah, hands on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to do clay over the computer. I have tried, uh, but it's been challenging. Uh, and I I've, uh, do supervision, I do consultation, I write, um, I, I get to teach for, you know, a couple of adjunct opportunities with a few different places. Um, usually it's related to Santre, but I'm on faculty in an interpersonal neurobiology program too. So I do a little, little science-y work here and there. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's just kind of a, a varied experience, but mostly I, I work out of this home base. I have a, a lovely workshop in Austin that's an art space where uh, my pottery studio is. It's where I work with clients. It's where I teach from. I'm curious, were you an artist first or a therapist first, or how did you come to this kind of wedding together of the, of the two? Right. Yeah. Good question. Cause I'm still unraveling that myself Still how, how is this what I do for a living where 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 did this come from I, I grew up in a very rural part of Texas and so you know when the school counselor would come around and tell you your four choices for a career therapist was not you know not one of, those. <laughs> of yeah. things that I I wanted to be a writer uh, so I, I studied um, communications in English, going going towards journalism uh, was my um, interest. And in fact, I was 
getting to do some newspaper work and um, my, my later part of undergrad. And then out of nowhere, um, it was an advisor, my communications advisor sat me down and said, uh, your writing is really all about therapy. Are you sure? Are you sure you're not a therapist? Um, and, and so she arranged a meeting for me to go uh, spend some time with a friend of hers who ran an MFT program. And, and so it, it really kind of just found me. Um, and, and so I, I was primarily thinking of myself as a writer and then moved towards a marriage and family therapist unknowingly. I had no idea what it meant. I had no, I had no understanding what I was choosing. Sometimes I think in hindsight, if someone had given me a brochure that actually described, you know, what we do, I think I would have been too scared yeah. Yeah. To, to do it. Uh, and yet, you know, ignorance allowed me to step right on in. Uh, well, and I don't know your experience. I uh, had lived some time in Texas as well, but also grew up in a rural area in Nebraska. And um, therapy isn't something that's very, there's not a lot of positive regard to the process of therapy or being a therapist. In fact, it's, I almost feel like it's the uh, but end of a lot of jokes. And so yeah. <laughs> it was that your experience in navigating, like entering into that career path in that area. It was, it was a lot of um, conversation ending declarations, oh, you know, where yeah. I could just feel that the people are like, Oh, I, I don't know what else to say after you tell me that's what you do or what you're going to yeah. do. Uh, and and so it, I didn't experience necessarily a lack of support, but there there was just no template, you know, for people to understand where, where I where I was coming from and what I did. Uh, and so I I I did feel a little um, even like now in hindsight I can realize I was feeling a little rebellious by choosing it, you know, like oh look, this is the opposite of all the things that I would have grown up around. And so I think it was appealing to me because it felt somehow so exotic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, but also my dad was a minister. And so there was, there was an air of some of this job, mm -hmm. you know, around, I don't, I don't work in any way similar you know, to what I would have seen in that world growing up. But it, it took me a while to realize there are parts of my job that he does understand. You know, we just anchor into it um, yeah. very, very differently. But where I'm from, the only people who did this kind of work were clergy. Yeah. Pastors, ministers. Yeah. 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 So in your journey of, you know, going to school to become a therapist, where did EMDR come into the picture specifically? I was a reluctant convert. Uh, it, you oh, know, hey, I, that's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I remember being curious about it. Um, my first exposure to it was a, a little problematic. And so, you know how sometimes you then associate an entire approach with one person. Yeah. And so my, my, my first encounter was uh, not one that left me with a bunch of curiosity, uh, but then it was over time, 
disconfirmed by another person who I watched and um, I worked with and I watched her work and I, and I watched how her clients were changing in the lobby. You know, as you go to the lobby and when you work in a group practice and you all descend onto this one spot once an hour. And, <laughs> yeah. and so you don't ever know any of these people, but you watch them somatically over yeah. the course of months. And there was just, there was something happening in her population who she was treating. So I asked her one day, like what, what approach she was um, pursuing. And she said EMDR. And I thought, well, crap, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to know more about that. I already decided yeah. I don't like that. Um, but I, I did eventually, um, I can't remember exactly when, maybe, maybe 12, 15 years ago, um, I went for basic training, an amazing trainer. Um, I've gotten to work with him a lot since um, going through the training but it, weekend one was really hard for me. You know, I'm an expressive therapist. And so someone gave me worksheets and yeah. told me to read from a worksheet. And I felt bumbly and like disfluent. And, yeah. and, and how, do you, how do you maintain relational connection while doing all of this? And so I wasn't convinced that it was going to ever find home in my spirit, um, but just had these amazing consultants who, you know, brought life to it and helped me find my version of how to be really practicing with fidelity, but still understanding that there was a place for creativity. Oh my gosh. I just, if we could capture just that one statement and um, out of this whole podcast episode, I feel like it's so important. And I want to explore more about how you did that, because I feel like of uh, someone who's really focused in expressive arts and just a man of the arts in general, to be given a script and a standardized protocol that says, this is how you do it. Um, and I don't know what your experience was in learning it, but I think one of the errors of the field of EMDR is that it's taught in a way oftentimes where people are receiving it in a way that there's like a right and a wrong. And so if you don't follow that script, somehow I'm breaking the rules and doing it wrong and can't do it that way. And so a lot of like the consultation we do and the podcast is all about not seeing it in these like black and white concepts and right and wrong, but more so branching out and saying, how can we begin to integrate other ways of presenting and doing it while still maintaining fidelity and you know, meeting those objectives. I I think it's so critical. I mean, it's 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 really become my passion because it it's hard for me to sometimes, as as involved as I am in the EMDR world, it's hard for me to reconcile that I'm I'm belonging to an approach that uses protocols. Yeah. Uh, that that alone <laughs> is just hard uh, for me to make sense of, but I. I think part of the, the problem is there's an assumption that the language on the worksheets is the same thing as fidelity to the model. And we know that that's not true because trainers use different worksheets right. and, and yet it's being taught a lot of times, or at least being understood, even if it's not being taught that way as the worksheet is the fidelity. When people are saying, trust the script, well, make sure you're saying trust the script for now, 
Trust the script until you've internalized the mechanics and you understand why these things flow in this order so that later when you have a client that doesn't meet conventional presentation, you understand why you would flip around at different things. And there's something being lost in translation about a lot of those dynamics. Marcel, I'm wondering for, from your perspective, what this, what neurobiology, what interpersonal neurobiology is really doing in the world of EMDR? Because I feel, you know, that's where I draw so much of my experience from and where I really ground myself in the fidelity uh, principle of EMDR, because if I know that it tracks neurobiologically, then I know that also it's going to, you know, be within that fidelity of EMDR. And so I'm just curious what you think about that. Yeah, I, I think the more we learn about the brain, the more it's saying, understand memories, understand um, relationship. Yes. Like those, those are the things like, <laughs> that's oh, well, beautiful. Else down, that's, that's really what we're coming to know. And that's what EMDR is, I think, really does put, put forward in, in a really strong way. The other thing about neurobiology is we don't really know anything, right? You know, like we, we kind of, we hear a theory, we hear an approach and as therapists, we get so excited that science might be giving a blessing on what we do that we then cling to it. And we are rigidly speaking it as truth instead of holding it as a theory that's going to change. Yeah. yeah. In 10 years, most of what we think is going to change. And yeah. if we're, we're so cult-like in our rigid holding to something, we're not leaving room for updates, then we're setting ourselves up to contradict everything interpersonal neurobiology is telling us. Yeah. That's rigidity and chaos right there. It is. Yeah, it really is. Even like, for example, this might get me in trouble right off the bat. I'm a very gentle mischief maker mm. um, just so you guys are <laughs> i think i can pick up on that know, a little bit like... yeah <laughs> we use words in emdr sometimes and, and language is hard because it's limiting but we use words and then we treat them as literal and one of the the phrases that always um makes me shudder is touchstone memory mm. we don't know what the touchstone memory i mean who <laughs> Who That's knows? preposterous. <laughs> what, else? what we're trying to say is float back to something that helped form your meaning-making template for how you see now, but we in no way know if that was the moment or a moment. It, that's not how humans develop. Yes. Um, you know, the way that you made meaning started 14 generations ago. You know, it didn't punctuate when you were four. And, and so I, I think eventually we're going to have to get a little more relaxed with our language while still practicing fidelity. So we're not imposing judgments on ourselves and our colleagues and our clients in the name of trying to practice something from an empirical point of view. Yeah, my my greatest desire is that whatever like fidelity means to EMDR also continues to grow and adapt and transform and change as um, the research and the science 
you know, kind of direct it to. And so just as you're talking about when we get too rigid to something, and I think EMDR has had such a huge mark on the culture of therapy at this part, like it's been really transformational that we don't get lost in trying to stay too rigidly cult-like or committed to this is what it has to be, that we don't stay curious about all of the other things that we're learning and also say like, how do we have EMDR keep up with that too and be able to expand and grow with that. And so just hearing you talk about it in this way is really exciting to connect with other people and like that are seeing it in that same way. Yeah, I feel like much of the way that we talk about it um, in the trainings that we do and in the different case conceptualization models that we that we have, it does, as you, I like the phrase, like playfully, you know, kind of challenge some of these presuppositions within old line EMDR um, that is so rigid to that script. We're asking us not to get caught up just in the three-pronged approach or the particulars of a script, but actually understand what is memory reconsolidation? What are these disconfirming experiences and this mismatch that we're really trying to help their system feel like they can accept the invitation to grab onto? And that's, oh, yeah. yeah. It's so it's so complicated, isn't it? I mean, even those concepts you just brought forward, yeah. thinking, thinking how little we know about memory consolidation and, and, and then I, it, it always inspires me. This is one of the things I love about EMDR is it always reminds me how brave people are that they come to us, strangers come to us as virtual strangers saying the most wounding things I've ever been through. I'm willing to bring here. And then we with memories, like we have in the early stages, this kind of history gathering resourcing way of packaging things together and then we move into the later phases and we break memories apart so that there's room for new meaning and then in the later phases you watch them come back together, back together. with this updated and it's it's this beautiful dance and there's dance, so much dance. courage and rhythm and beauty to it that i i i do feel rather inspired and lucky to do the work um, i hope there's room for us to continue updating all the things that you all just said. Yeah. So I want to make sure we get into the specifics of what you do with the expressive arts and the sand tray. I feel like there's, um, as a consultant, I get so many questions on like working with kids, working with families. How do we even start to bring the super standardized approach in with children? Because guess what? they don't buy it <laughs> like they're not up for walking through the a phases with our script so um and then you add <laughs> parents into that and family dynamics so i would love to just hear what that looks like in your practice and how have you begin to you know integrate emdr into that work yeah sure yeah, yeah if you have much agenda with the kid they're gonna be you know flipping your table over and licking the doorknobs they're they're not <laughs> they're not gonna just go there because you, you said this is how people heal yeah. um, but the, i i always go back to the basics of aip and we say we we believe in the power and the wisdom of of the human sitting across from us and that's that's not age limited right like children come in with their own wisdom 
um, with their own seeing. And in fact, they have a lot more access to natural strength than, than others. Uh, one of my mentors um, taught me that, that we're really broken in the way we teach therapy because we start off new therapists saying, your primary goal is to get your client to trust you. And she says, that's backwards. Our primary goal is communicating to the client that we trust them, mm-hmm. that their bodies, that their reactions are trustworthy, that they make sense. And so that I think it's the same with kids. They need to understand and believe that I, I see all the logic and the protectors that have been developed um, to, to, to yeah. get through life. And so I, I just make open space. You know, a lot of the early appointments after, you know, meeting with parents and getting buy-in and making sure they understand where we're headed, you know, when a kid walks in for the first time, it's, you know, here's a tray of sand, here are figures. I do this with adults too, to be fair. I I will say that even my adult clients, everybody gets the same treatment (laughs) or everybody's going to get messy if they come. Uh, And, and, and I just say, you know, build your world and that's Mm -hmm. where we start. And most of the time without much prompting in the early sessions, they give me history. I don't have to accomplish phase one, like they, they do it. And then there's a, a moment where they will shift to phase two. And if I just say build a world, they start building safe places. They yeah. start including wise figures and then they naturally will move to uh, recreating um, painful experiences. You, you don't always have to prompt it, you know, like if, if we yeah. trust them, we trust them. Well, and that's and so fundamental to the AIP model, which is really, we're just setting up a space for the body to do what it's naturally built to do. Yeah. And if it feels safe enough to do that, then those processes and, and action systems will, you know, carry out their, their intentions. So I love that so much. I totally agree. And it, I, I do accept, I mean, I think that there's a big responsibility you have if you're choosing to practice in an expressive way, then you you can't rely on a worksheet. So you do have to know yeah. every aspect of that model so that if you're going to say you're practicing EMDR, that you are indeed following, you know, the same general concepts that other people do. So I, I think it's my job to make sure that I can recognize okay, they just created a target. So I now need to hear, have they already given me a cognition? You know, is there a natural scaling opportunity available in this world? Mm-hmm. You know, how many emotions and sensations have already been described? So yeah. am I just reflecting or do I need to interview? And if I'm interviewing, am I asking the client directly or am I asking through one of the figures? You know, and they, they reveal all of those things to you. It's just um, patiently being present. So what I hear you saying, and I just think this is beautiful, is that instead of us as the therapist cueing these responses for the sake of, you know, meeting our task that we think we need to have met, we're instead being very observant and attuned to what's naturally unfolding in the space and identifying what's happening in that. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I, I think sometimes the more attachment wounded a client is, they might communicate to you directly or through their behavior that they need you to have momentarily more of a leadership role. 
So I, yeah. I'm not anti being a little more directive, you know, when that's what the, the client is communicating they need. And so there's no reason you can't turn each of the EMDR phases into prompts, you know, create a genogram and get gathering family history or, you know, th th those are often really needed. Uh, but I think the client will tell you what they yeah. need and then there's space for just waiting. Yeah. So where do you start to, and how do you start to integrate the bilateral stimulation in with this? I introduce BLS in the first session or two, just preemptively, like in case we need it. And so um, if, if it's a kid, um, I, I, have a, I have a lot of random things happening around where you all can't see right now, but you know, there's a percussion section over here and mm -hmm. there's some kind of like a whole collection of different ones and things. And so sometimes it's scavenger hunt, like, and I'll explain the concept of um, how our body has this um, rhythm that it desires. It just wants to go back and forth. Um, and sometimes it's slow. Um, whenever we're trying to hold something new, sometimes when we're trying to figure something out, it's fast. Can you go find all the different ways your eyes and ears and body can do that? And we might just turn that into a scavenger hunt and yeah. they, they will often show me tactily or with eye movements to what they're comfortable um, with. Like right now I have, I have one with me here. This always great to do something visual on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Very engaging, but I'll describe it. <laughs> well, um, we have the whole thing recorded, even video, so we can release what we need. <laughs> yes. but the, my, my EMDR trainer um, uses this thing from an auto parts store that's oh, yeah. like mechanics, magnet. like telescoping mm -hmm. magnet um, yeah. and for, for eye movements or for tapping. And since it's magnetized, um, you know, some of my, my kids prefer... I'm used putting magnets on it. Right. And so I let them choose. And so one of my clients right now is love, it loves Harry Potter. So we use oh, this nice. Gryffindor magnet, you know, just put it on the end and that becomes cool. the eye movements. And so they, they sometimes can help me find other times if it's more traditional play or traditional art, I try to introduce bilateral within whatever medium they're drawn to. So if they love clay, then I might keep two lumps of clay out for squeezing, you know, or in the sand tray, I have one like narrow skinny tray that sits right below my regular tray that we can do figure eights in um, or put the light bar behind. Um, and so it, I try to give them some choice and I try to keep it as related to the medium as possible. So we're not leaving it um, to, to do that part. Um, but I just show them, I show them early and then let them find their own comfort. Hmm. That's beautiful. I'm wondering as you encounter varying degrees, you know, with the adoption type of work, um, that's really where I think so much of the conversation we've had up to this point really shows its importance. Um, not to say that it doesn't with other clients, but with those that have experienced abandonment or, you know, that relational rupture in their family system, um, this type of invitation to be playful and expressive and creative oh, can be something that kind of either brings up a, like 
yes, I'll just do this, or maybe a no, or you know, how you navigate some of that specifically with this population uh, in that in that adoption work. Yeah, I I think that's such an important question. If if I had my way, um, every phase one uh, teaching in the MDR would include an attachment assessment. Yes, absolutely. Um, it, it, because the, what what pocket and stream of attachment someone's primarily living in in response to their wounds really sets you up to know what kind of resources they need, what are going to be the likely blocking beliefs, and what kind of interweaves would make the most sense. Like you you really can hold a, a, a lot more attuned awareness if you're aware of of that patterning. EMDR is no different than, than most of therapy. There's an attachment security bias in the field. And, and so models are developed assuming security is going to walk in the door. And yeah. so one of the ways that happens in EMDR, and I see it with my adopted clients a lot, is there's an assumption that prior to the trauma existed safety. And so when we talk about phase two, it's really we're talking about returning to the pre-existing level of security. Yeah. that happened that was there before the trauma and for you know not all but a lot of, of people who have lived through adoption uh, that they didn't have access to all of that so sometimes you're patterning in again depending on their story and depending on their how long they've been in in their placed home um, you might be patterning and security for the first time yes. so thinking all of this traditionally just is not all that helpful. Um, so you, you really do have to have some ways of coming to know that part of them early. Yeah, I think it's it's a, almost like a, a given with the adoption population, but it's so often what I see with my clients with really complex cases or just, I mean, so frequently that that there is not security walking in the door. And so even as we go into like the most basic resource of calm, safe place, like that exercise can be so activating because yeah. safety is not a recognizable experience for them. Yeah. And safety feels threatening, yes. you know, like, oh, I'm only alive because I didn't let myself feel falsely safe. Yeah. You know, I stayed vigilant or dissociative and that's how I got through. And now here you are, you know, you big fool telling yeah. me to do the thing and you know it is it can be really activating yes. and and that's that's even true for you know some of our clients who have attachment security but their traumas are relational in nature yes uh, that they, they can still have that same so one of the things i tell my um consultees is let, let's try not to use the word safe you know there are other ways to say it but regardless of what language you use safe place is as much an assessment as it is a resource oh and so just just treat it as information whatever they do is information they needed you to understand to plan for where to go next mm -hmm. um, that, that's all that's happening so so much of our like our model and how we work um, is focusing on relationship. And so I just am really curious in the way you're practicing as you have these really beautiful ways for them to express themselves, how much does the relationship between you and the client come to play in all of this? 
Yeah. I don't, I don't know how you do therapy without it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, it, it's a mystery to me. Um, I remember early in my career writing a conference proposal for um, a conference in the expressive world. And when it got rejected, the feedback was um, there was an overemphasis on relationship oh, in the wow. proposal. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, people think that in our field. Wow. You know, overemphasis. Yeah, yeah. And that, that has stuck with me. Like I used it as the motivation to be like, I will not change that part of me. You know, that, that I, I don't know what else there is to do. So I, I think from an interpersonal neurobiology point of view, you know, that that's how we anchor in is, you know, be it, you know, Siegel and, and his contributions, Pat Ogden and and hers, Bruce Ecker and memory science, Porges and Deb Dana, and all of them are saying it's safety. Yes. You know, everybody safety is saying connection. it's safety. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Safety and connection. Absolutely. I think, I think that we, we just don't always know what that means in our field, mm-hmm. you know, and, and therapists are wounded people and, as well. And um, so I, I wish that I could somehow just like, you know, drop some sort of like virtual hug into every therapist's mm-hmm. office and say, you have yeah. to start here. Like, do yeah. you feel loved? Do you yeah. feel important? Do you feel worthy? Uh, do you feel that what you do matters? If not, do not leave your office. Do not walk to your lobby. Do not welcome anyone into your space. That's right. Until you are securely there because you can't be relational mm-hmm. otherwise. Yeah. One of the podcasts that was so helpful to me um, throughout college and throughout my uh, graduate school experience was Therapist Uncensored. They're based in Austin. Yeah. Um, yeah. And one of the things that they said on that podcast that I just was struck by, and this is before I'd been EMDR trained or done any of this work, um, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to have the relationship? Because then we could just heal on our own and there'd be no problem at all. We could just go walking down the street, just these you know self-regulating beings, but that's not what a human is. That's, that's not what a human, you know, mammalian organism actually is. We are dependent largely on our relationship. And that's honestly where a lot of our trauma comes from. So then healing must, (laughs) must have that component as well. I have real fantasies about just becoming robot. Yeah. (laughs) It would just be so handy. It would solve just to be Terminator or, you know, to be able to have (laughs) those abilities. You know, I've, I've been thinking a lot lately about, I have muscular dystrophy. I was, I was born with it. And, and so some of my earliest memories are a part of my diagnosis journey, you know, the tests. Um, and I can still picture the faces of doctors and nurses. You know, this was 40 years ago for me. And I can still, and, and when I recall them, I can tell you which ones I decided were safe and which ones weren't, wow. you know, that all of that was nonverbal. And that was, again, that's what we're learning from attachment science and neurobiology is that what we say has very little bearing on whether or not someone experiences us as secure and as a, having the capacity to be a part of their healing. It's, it's happening in what you transmit, you know, it's coming through your body, through your voice, through your tone, all of those things betray you, you know, so we, we've got to start with congruence. Yes. 
So how do you like practically bring that into like this merging of EMDR and Santre or working with play poetry? How do you really emphasize the relationship and offering that safety or that felt sense of safety with your clients? Yeah. And, you know, we, we have these little moments in EMDR kind of fidelity that are handy. For example, we all talk about the stop signal. That is a beautiful moment early in like, don't, you know, don't just say you can say stop whenever you want, uh-huh. you know, like make that a, an empowering thing and then practice it. I want you to right now tell me to stop and watch whether or not I can handle it. You know, mm-hmm. let's not wait until we need it in a moment of terror. Let's, yeah. let's let the relationship start experiencing all of these concepts and prove to their nervous system that, that we can be the things that we're offering to them. Yeah. So I, I think ma- making sure that we're anchoring every little moment into that kind of foreshadowing that, mm-hmm. oh, wait, am, am I just telling them about this? Or is this sure. something that we're experiencing right now in our relationship? Yeah. yeah. And to take something like the stop signal that can be just a cognitive concept. I'm going to tell you this concept and we can use it into immediately, like just the way you reframed that into like, let's actually just experience it together. Cause what I'm saying to you doesn't really matter a lot to your body. It's what we're going, how I'm going to respond to your signals of, I don't feel safe or something. And this isn't okay. Do you know, I think some of the most healing moments I've experienced in EMDR is when someone told me to stop and I did, you know, I, I think that there are many times that that was a disconfirming experience as powerful as anything in the reprocessing. Yes. I mean, think we we have opportunities. Yeah. Think about how, I mean, just symbolic or perhaps directly linked to their trauma that actually might be. Mm-hmm. And then in having another person respond, not just with acceptance of the boundary, but also with continued invitation to connect even after. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, that reminds me back to the world of adoption with one of the, the major issues is disenfranchised grief. That there, there's not a lot of experienced permission for bio parents, for adoptive parents, for adopted children to have their own truth experienced, their own ability to say, it's not what you've decided is true about my family. Um, it's, I need you to understand what it was like to be me. And, and because there's not a lot of room and space for that to happen, those parts get disenfranchised we have to actively disprove that we're not a part of that world. You know, they're waiting to see, can you recognize, not enforce an agenda, not expect me, not even to necessarily believe that because I'm adopted, I'm experiencing the kind of grief that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But do you leave space for it? You know, my kids are adopted and, um, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times in our lives someone has said, y'all are just so great. Oh. It, I, what you did, I just, I would never be able to do that. You know, and I'm like, yeah, we're coming unglued at home. Yeah. I, I'm going to go ahead and need you to not pedestal anything yeah. about this, you know, and, 
and, and stop othering <laughs> us in some like fantasy yeah. Yeah. way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, we have an adopted daughter as well. And I relate to that so much and they'll say it like right in front of her. And it's just like, oh, like it's othering it's us. Tough. It's othering her. It's, and I know they mean so well in it, but it is, it's a really, it's a difficult thing to navigate yeah. a response you, to that. I will tell you, you get better as you, yeah. as you get older, you, you care less about being nuanced. That will not fade over time. But the, it's, it's disrespectful to the bio family, you know, that, and, and that, that those bio parents are still in your kid, yeah. you know, and, and the, yeah. the, the whole, the whole setup and, 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 you know, it, this even bleeds into another area of passion for me, um, you know, based on my lived experience is how much ableism is in our field and in the world. And, and the, the two things in, in the adopted world and in the world of disability, they're not all that different, mm-hmm. you know, that have, I'm going to say a phrase that got me in trouble once before, but I'm going to do it again anyway. This is um, a great spot to do that. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> have you all heard the phrase inspiration porn? Oh, that, no, that, no. That there's like this like felt sense. Let me watch all the emotional videos. Let me get all the emotional content about other people's stories and ignore the struggle and just borrow from the strength that no, I've decided. The, is yeah, there. yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So it's kind of a false sense. And I, I think that that's part of that ableist and, and grief disenfranchisement that is just, uh, I want to borrow from the part of your story that feels good to me to internalize. And I'm going to go ahead and leave the rest of it over there. So you're on your own. Yeah. Um, and it is really um, as often as the hard things that kids live through and adoption, it's the reactions that really then create the toxic isolation and aloneness that makes the, the trauma more complex to yeah. heal. You know, it's yeah. the world um, as much as anything that they, they lived through originally. Yeah. I mean, I would love to have an entirely yeah. other conversation with you just about like, like the disability piece of that ability and disability and yeah I'm wondering like what your even thoughts are just from the you know just the deaf and hard of hearing community yeah yeah I think that like hearing you say that just sparks so much interest um I work with deaf and hard of hearing in my in the population that I work with because I can sign and seeing so much of that just one like the cultural aspects of how therapy is set up is not at all congruent or supportive with the culture of the deaf and hard of hearing. Mm -hmm. And, um, oh gosh, there's just so many layers to it. Mm -hmm. And I know that that translates into just a variety of different disabilities. And I, you know, there's nuances Mm -hmm. for each, but how there is humility covers so much ground, doesn't it? As an EMDR Mm -hmm. therapist, because your office is almost always going to have something in it that doesn't feel safe, you know? And so you, you have a deaf hard of hearing client or somebody like me, who's more mobility impaired or someone who has, has um, 
somewhere in the range of neurodiversity that's different than you comes in and they're going to find something overwhelming or hard about your space. It's, it's, that's not automatically a problem. The problem is when you don't recognize it and have the humility to address it, you know, that that's when we really get into, we're now reinforcing, how can they ever get into phase two work with us? If that's not a shared common experience. Yeah, mm-hmm. if we're not willing to like be able to step into and in, and notice that discomfort and accept the expression of that discomfort or lack of safety, I think so often we can get in this gridlock of taking it personal in those ways rather than being able to stay humble and invite yeah. the expression stay of stay connected. Of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get into that activated place. We were just having a conversation before this, Marshall, about. Um, kind of the nature of therapy and how, you know, you mentioned it earlier about how brave people are um, to come in as a mammalian organism and start talking to a stranger uh, about some of the things that have really made them feel the most vulnerable and insecure in their life, which from a evolutionary perspective is not something you want to disclose to other people or to other potential sources of threat. And so for us to even think that you know, our space that we've created to be as safe as possible, um, to, to rigidly hold on to that and not be open to another person's desire to change it in a way that would make them feel more safe or have their own touch on it to say, this is now a place for me as well. I just, yeah, we we can really quickly make it about our need to be appreciated instead of their need to be safe. And we, we don't know we're conflating the yes. two always. Yes. Yeah. I think the environment also our approach, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Absolutely. To, like, well, this mm-hmm. is what I do and this is how I practice. And this always works like any of those really rigid or absolute constructs in what we're doing. If we can't stay open and really flexible with those and say, there's aspects, I'm thinking of EMDR specifically, but really any therapeutic approach mm-hmm. aspects of this that I may have to let go of or new things I have to integrate mm-hmm. to really be able to like meet the person I'm trying to work with rather than trying to fold them into the practice that I want to do. Oh yeah. I, you know, for me, I think you just described why poetry makes a lot of sense for me is because of that, that level of we're, we're establishing a baseline rhythm where we can come to hear each other without, like in a literal sense, without rules, without form, without punctuation. Like, can we just get a shared language that gets us rhythmically in the same place? And that you, you watch some of those things start to um, come into synchrony you know, uh, because not all language is left brain, you know, there is some space for language to, to be over in the part of the brain where we as EMDR therapists are trying to get to enliven. Yeah. So how do you bring poetry into your sessions or into your work? Yeah. Well, this, this is where, you know, it's for sure about to get quirky. Um, <laughs> we're both very quirky people so we're very ready okay. for this <laughs> well for one i you know a lot of people had a bad experience with a high school english teacher 
And so uh, you, you, you can't always use the word poetry. I've learned, uh, especially okay. <laughs> teenagers, you know, some what are, are very cold words for it. Like what are Sometimes your- <laughs> I just call it lyrics because okay. almost everybody loves songs. Yeah, there you, go. you know, like if we were to rewrite that song or, you know, if you were to come up with your own lyrics to, and so, you know, part of it's making sure that I understand what language is accessible to, to the, the people around, but one of the things that I really believe is this is such a strange thing. I've never said this out loud to, to a group of people. And now knowing that I don't know the people who are going to hear it. I think you will become a better EMPR therapist. If you just make a pattern of reading poetry in your own time. Oh my gosh. You know, yes, so step one, even outside of the office, outside of what you do with clients, it's lighting up in the right part of the brain that we need practice experiencing and in the right order. There are fMRI studies that show the difference between reading prose and poetry and, and poetry gets us in to a comfortable place with that aspect of self that we talked about earlier, especially if you don't trip over, Oh, I must interpret this to mean the right thing that the poet, If, if you can first just let yourself notice what what sounds are pleasing to me? What sounds activate me? Do I like alliteration of the B? Um, or is it more of an S that I'm drawn to today? You know, am, am I in love with rhyme or is that distracting? Um, you know, there's a reason why we sing lullabies to babies. They don't know what the hell we're saying, yeah. You know, yeah. but we do. And some of our lullabies are super creepy. Yes, we say are. them <laughs> and in ways that you know communicate safety because there's there's the pleasant alliteration and a patterning of speech and and things that that make it just fine. So step one, I think, just start reading the poetry. You know, be in that world. But step two, clients speak in poetry, especially when they in, they're in EMDR. They're not reporting back in these full sentences. Yes. Like they're giving you concentrated sensory reports. They're describing very imagery-based um, issues. And, and they're doing it in ways that are so poetic naturally mm. that we then get to repeat back that rhythm. Even if we're not verbally doing it, like it's coming into us and then finding a home and energetically yeah. coming back. It enhances the processing, I think, to just be engaged in the rhythm of what they're saying as much as the content of what they're saying. And it gives you all these body cues about what's happening. Sometimes I will say to them, you wrote a poem and I'm hearing the same poem repeat itself and then it'll become an interweave if they're blocked. I'm going to tell you the three lines you're saying and tell me what do you need the fourth line to be? And, and then it's just, they, they just wrote a poem and they yeah. just unstuck themselves, you know, through, through the same rhythm that, that they were already using outside yeah. of their awareness. Well, and I love that you're cueing in with that to the place of wisdom within them, you know, that very same place that's so lit up by the poetic, you know, rhythm of regulation that is the same place that our, you know, self emerges from. So really when we're creating that co-constructed poem together, that's coming from both of our place of really innate and co-regulated wisdom. I love that so much. Oh, I love that you speak nerd. 
Yeah. Hey, that is delightful. Most nerd. It is really good. It was really good. That's <laughs> uh, yeah, I think also that there that there's sometimes, you know, the the journaling that might need to happen outside of session, it can be overwhelming. You know, that that can be um problematic. And so I like teaching about a haiku. You know, what if instead of getting stuck on the intrusive image, if I transform that into how can I make this fit the syllables, not in like a rigid way, but I just transition my focus of the image into now a different way of being with it. And then close the book, write the haiku and then fold it up, put it away, you know, and it's, it's just a different way to do, you know, that, that log the, of, of containment. Um, so I, I think there's lots of little places it belongs in the process. One of the things that I'm kind of just subjectively curious about is with this expressive way of doing um, this work, which I, I find myself agreeing very intuitively with a lot of the things you're saying, even just with the way that I'm with, that I am with my clients, um, just kind of going with spontaneity. I talk a lot about that and this kind of place of playfulness within ourselves of even in this sort of dark and dreary place um, of exploring these traumatic experiences, what kind of, of curiosity can we still hold on to in our exploration? But how do you find yourself just transitioning from points of the therapeutic process along, mm -hmm. you know, with such a tool chest of, of different experiences yeah. to have? How do you just subjectively experience that process of therapy with your clients? Yeah, what a good question. I'm not sure, but I'm going to tell you what comes to mind. Um, yeah. it is you, you made me think of Edtronic and... Yeah. Um, you know, the way that he talks about so much of health is really uh, tolerating uncertainty, mm. you know, and making peace with the ambiguity and practicing that. So I, I think, I think that that's, what's alive in me a lot of times is I'm not, I'm not trying to communicate to a client that we're reaching for a technique or an intervention that's going to solve something that we're trying to reach for the thing that's already alive that they just brought in. Yeah. And that we're using to increase our capacity for not knowing and understanding that new meaning comes from letting go of certainty. Uh, and so they will usually give you cues if they are being really, really declarative about a need for something to become concrete. Mm -hmm. Let's go to Santry because you can choose whatever figure and place it wherever you want it to be. And it's contained and it's externalized. And if they're naturally like showing that they're needing rhythm, like they're, they're showing you through their language patterns, through the way they're moving their body, like, okay, let's reach for some poetry there. If, if I had a client um, some time ago that I, as we were doing the work, they were like literally pushing on the table without their awareness. Like I could see them gripping and pushing. I'm like, I think we need the clay. Their hands, yeah. if you imagine what, what material are their hands working with without knowing you know, it usually their body is telling you or their language rhythm is telling you uh, what they're looking for. And then you just get to put it in their hands instead of it being a technique 
Yeah, yeah they need another you. medium of expression. And that's really where you can have that. I just would love to see a panoramic shot of your <laughs> setup there because it sounds like you just have a bunch of mediums for potential expression that you in your sort of dual awareness as a therapist can sit and be with them while also thinking about what you have available to you in your space to help them say what it is they're saying. Oh yeah, I, I do. It's, there's, there's a lot happening here. I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah. yeah. There are some things going around uh, and a lot of times it doesn't go great. You know, no. a lot of times like I, I suggest something or I offer something or they may even choose something and it brings a rupture, you yeah. know, that, that that's part, that's part of our work. Yes. is to welcome the rupture and to initiate the repair yeah. and no matter where the rupture came from it's my responsibility to take the lead in the repair mm. um, and so I, I think that all of these materials are beautiful and they're not foolproof in any way yeah. i think things go wrong a lot um, yeah. going wrong is still potentially beautiful yeah. Gosh, I feel like some of the most powerful healing comes from those moments of yes. uh, rupture right there in the room. Repair. Just like you're talking yeah. about the power of the stop sign, the, the moment they tell you to stop and you respond to that, the moment we can experience tension or conflict or emotion with each other, and then watch how we're able to repair and resolve that. Yeah. So powerful. Yeah. I just was brought to mind one of the ways that I find myself just kind of naturally wanting to go with the person's sort of what, what they're coming out this moment with inside of them is just with like ways of reprocessing or ways of resourcing. Like I was just thinking of a kid that I was working with recently where they wanted to be underneath a blanket, um, like full on kind of fort uh, and have the buzzer cord going underneath that to hold. And just going through that construction of the fort with them was itself kind of what's coming to mind with your description of the concreteness mm -hmm. of the sand tray. Like each pillow that we laid was in you know a very important place. And then as we draped the blanket over and they got in there and got the buzzers, like all of that was so uh, important to the process that we were that we were trying to see to fruition. They did containment. Yeah, they knew exactly what containment meant without anyone having to say this yeah. is what containment means. Yeah, that's so that's, cool. it's it's kids are fun that way, too, because the, there aren't as many hindrance uh, roadblocks. I'd probably be the best way to say it to them trusting their creativity um, because they they just are like, all right, sure. I had an idea. I don't have a choice but to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I got it. I love that. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. So I would love for you to share a little bit about the trainings that you offer, the books that you have out, um, just any of the resources that our listeners could tap into to get more information on what you're talking about today. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I teach usually in the area of, you know, overlap between expressive work and, and trauma and attachment, so often EMDR. Um, so if you go to my website, you can see what's coming up. Um, I, I love to teach on dissociation. It's one of my loves in life is how protective and misunderstood that, that part of us is. And 
sometimes as EMDR therapists, we've learned to be afraid of that, which does yeah. not help anyone. Um, and so I, I want to be a part of a reclamation of dissociation. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so that those are some of the things that I do. And I, I was a co-author with Dr. Holmeyer on an advanced sanitary therapy book that really prominently explores trauma and sanitary uh, and attachment and sanitary. And then have contributed some chapters to other books. And the most EMDR specific one was Anne uh, Beckley Forrest and Annie Monaco's um, book on um, EMDR in the playroom. And I wrote a chapter on uh, Santre and family play um, for that. Um, I do some consultation, but to be honest, I'm winding that down. So I'm, I have some CITs that are wonderful, um, but I'm preparing to have a bit of a transition next year. Um, I'm going to be um, powering down from a lot of what I do and to focus a year on writing and, and only teaching the workshops that I think are the most congruent with my spirit. I I'm needing that. a bit of a reset uh, and yeah. making sure that I'm doing really some depth work. I want to be doing longer things with fewer people. Yeah, uh, yeah honor my introversion for a year and, and then re-emerge. <laughs> um, and so there, that's some of the transition and, and working on a book of poetry during during that time too. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Where, where could people um, find your, you said you have some consultants in training, which I think we always want to go for the main consultant and say, hey, this is the one I want to talk to, but consultants and training and those who have learned from us, I think are, can be just as great and then offer a whole new set of, mm-hmm. you know, experiences and areas of knowledge. So if someone wanted consultation in some of these specific areas, how could they get in touch with someone who's been yeah. trained by you? If, uh, so I, I keep a spreadsheet of Um, CITs I'm currently working with and those that have promoted up to ACs and they all indicate on there what are their areas of focus um, and specialization and practice and whether or not they do individual group combo and um, so uh, sometimes I have it linked directly through my website and sometimes I take that link down and just ask people to email me so if you go to my website and you don't see the link active then just shoot me an email and I will gladly share that uh, with you as needed. Okay. Will you give your web address for the listeners so they can find that easily? I will. It's my name smushed together, marshalliles.com. So it's M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L-L-Y-L-E-S.com. So three L's in the middle, just keep going. You'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll make sure that that's in the show notes as well. Mm. That will be kind of the main spot. I guess they can find everything. Yeah. yeah. You've got some really neat sections on there. You have one on poetry. You've got one on all the other podcasts that you've been on. So people can listen more to hear you speak about these things, your books, writings, and things on there. So those of you that are interested in hearing more on this please check out his website to get more exposure to this great information. Thanks. Thanks for the work the two of you are doing as well. I'm really trying to communicate to the world, you know, the, the, the beautiful uh, work that that's possible by diving into a different way of doing um, this model. So very appreciative of that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. you as well, Marshall. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for your time today and, hopefully sometime in the future we'll get to connect again professionally and maybe 
have a conversation more on disabilities and things like that, I would love to talk again. And dissociation. That's, oh, that's also where sure. my neurobiology yeah. and dissociation, I'm very interested, so. I would love it. Yeah. All right, thank you, take care. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast. This podcast is a project of Beyond Healing Media, a media creation group committed to creativity, community, and embracing the beauty of being human. If you like this podcast, you might also like the other podcasts of Beyond Healing Media. Beyond Trauma is an educational podcast on the journey of trauma therapy and what it means to be humans who have been hurt, but are learning to recover and grow, living the life we all want of safety and connection. The Burnout Educator is an interview-style podcast that invites stories from people across the spectrum of the educational system and seeks to see the human inside the role they play. It is our desire that you see parts of your story and those around you in the stories you hear. The Evidence-Based Therapist is an educational podcast where we read so you don't have to. On this podcast, we discuss seminal, recent, and relevant research on psychotherapeutics and the embodied relational sciences. How do we know what is evidence-based and how do we use it in our practice? You'll find out on the EBT podcast.